From the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga, and my guest today is Katie Hudson. Now, uh, if you want to hear how Katie and I met, stick around for the end of this podcast because we had a conversation, a, a an intense, um, a little heavy conversation that's really, really, really good. And at the end, I was packing things up, and she goes, wait, I wanted to tell the people, the people, I wanted to tell them, uh, I wanted to tell the story of what we first met. Uh, she remembered the story that I had forgotten, which is one of my very favorite stories uh, of an insane night, uh, which was which happened to be the night where Katie and I met. Um, so please stick around for that conversation. I think you'll be glad you did. But no, Katie and I have known each other for half our lives. We met uh, when we were at least in the same community uh, around Belmont University uh, in the late 90s. And we started our musical careers at the same time in the same community. And I uh, She's long been a, an artist who I really admire. I love her writing and the way that she communicates. I just really enjoy uh, her spirit and I've always uh, been thankful when I get to spend some time with her. But, you know, they moved north of town. We live a little bit south of town. Like, we don't go to the same church. Like, we don't get to see each other as much as we used to. Um, but her and her husband, Kenny, are uh, people I always am glad to get to spend some time with, um, though it happens, you know, infrequently. Um but I wanted to have this conversation uh, this weekend so that I could post this podcast now because a year ago we got word that Katie had just learned uh, that she had a very, very aggressive form of breast cancer and it was not looking good. Um, it was a shock to her, to all of us. And we started praying with her and, and for their family. And um, it's been quite uh, not a journey, but it's been quite an experience. I wanted to let Katie tell the story of that year on the podcast. She's also telling the story of that year through a, a new book of poetry that she's written uh, over the course of this year. Uh, that she's actually in the midst of a Kickstarter campaign to, well, to allegedly to fund um, this book of poetry. She's trying to raise fifteen hundred bucks. As of the time that we got together, she'd already raised maybe eight or nine thousand, maybe ten thousand. Um, but you still got two weeks to support this and. Um, and get this book of poetry and support her family, uh, which would be awesome. And you should do that. So I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Again, you've got two weeks if you're listening to this on the day that it airs. Um, but the book will be available later. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about career change, the kind of circumstances that make us choose one thing over another. And we've touched on health a little bit in some episodes, uh, but never to this extent. And um, whether cancer is something you're going through, whether illness is something you're going through, or someone in your community is, um, there is so much to learn uh, from this. Because lots of people go through terrible things. Uh, we all do, right? But to go through them the way that Katie has, and with the wisdom and insight that she's always had, but now that she brings to this experience, is truly a gift. And so uh, I think this might be a conversation that you're going to come back to more than once. Um, and I'm so thankful that she had the guts to, to go for it. Um, Katie, you're awesome. Also want to give you guys a little update on me. Uh, I mentioned this a couple months ago, uh, but I started a new role uh, about a month ago now at Integrity Music, where I'm the director of A&R, and I've been doing this for like, yeah, 
four weeks, and it's been great. Um, just a great team of people. I'm really loving the work that I'm getting to do there. Uh, it is making the podcast a little more tricky. Um, I'm, it's eating up more of my free brain space, even though I have my nights free. My Having my brain free is, um, uh, has not been quite as easy as I hoped. Uh, so thank you guys for your patience as um, I haven't been able to get the podcast out weekly like I, uh, like I like to. Um, but hopefully we're able to get back to that soon. I probably should have waited a little bit to start this next season, uh, but I just had had so many great conversations and wanted to get them out there. So, you know, you do the best you can, and uh, I just love doing this. So anyway, I just wanted to give you the update there and uh, let you know that it's going well, and that's nice. At some point soon, I'm probably going to tell my own story on the podcast, but I'm waiting until I feel like it's the right moment. Uh, but wanted to give you the update there. You guys are awesome. And uh, you're going to love this conversation with my friend, Katie Hudson. Can we agree that sometimes life gets hard? Having an outside guiding perspective helps us all get through those times well. We talk about it often on this podcast, so I want to tell you about some friends of mine who provide the perspective and guidance that can help you thrive, especially during difficult or transitional times. Global Counseling Network is their name. Global Counseling Network is not a group of life coaches, professional development people, HR specialists, or self-help specialists. They're more than that. They are the highest quality counselors that join you on the journey of life to provide trusted feedback and counsel. Your Global Counseling Network counselor is available anytime, anywhere, no matter where you are, based on your schedule. I know you have a lot going on, and trying to juggle it all can seem impossible at times. That's why I recommend my friends at Global Counseling Network as a partner to help you navigate life. Reach them now at globalcounselingnetwork.com. That's globalcounselingnetwork.com. Do this for you. New in Nashville is brought to you by the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. Do you ever struggle to understand if your work really matters and how it fits into the grand narrative of life? Well, the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work is asking and answering questions just like this every day through ongoing events, programming, and resources. Join them soon at one of their upcoming summer programs like their five-week Faith and Work 101 course or by applying to Gotham, their flagship nine-month Faith and Work Leadership Intensive. Be sure to use the code THEPIVOT, one word, for a 10% discount on any of their upcoming events and connect with them online at nifw.org. Yesterday, I went to my oncologist and she said, yeah, I said, do I like at some point get like, do you call me no evidence of disease or something? She's like, that's stage four. You're not stage four. She's like, we can say you're cancer free. Really? I was like, oh, well, that's nice to hear. Yeah. So that was the first time you've heard that. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten that impression from things. Okay. Like that when they haven't found things, but yeah, but yesterday she's like, I had a really, I'll, I'll tell you about it, but I had a really aggressive can Like it's, it was a wicked aggressive. I mean- we yeah. were not praying for like, I hope she feels better. It was like, <laughs> please yeah. survive. Yeah. It was crazy aggressive. I'll yeah. tell you about it. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay. We met 20-ish some years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a very long time. Um, and uh, we both had come to town to do music. And you're yeah. from Virginia area, right? Well, I was I was in Virginia before that. Okay. I'm an army brat. So That's my right, folks yeah. are from Western Pennsylvania. But yeah, I had come, let's see. So I spent 6th to 12th grade in Chantilly, Virginia, which is by Fairfax, which is by D.C. Yeah. Um, and then I went to Grove City College for a year. Do you want to hear how I got to Nashville? Sure. Okay. 
So I was at Grove City College, and when I looked at all my schools, I looked at Wheaton and Vanderbilt and um, Asbury, and uh, I didn't know Belmont existed. And I looked at all the schools. I got into Vanderbilt. My parents laughed because it's wicked expensive and so <laughs> far away from where they were landing. They were like, no, yeah. honey, no. <laughs> it, there wasn't scholarship happening. Yeah. For the, like, there was a full scholarship happening. on this impossible thing. That you, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, was, I got the Wellesley Book Award in high school, too, like for Wellesley. And they were like, no. My dad was a – he's rather conservative. And he was like <laughs> – like they kind of – it was – this backhanded, like, good for you, honey, but hell no. <laughs> That's kind of what I got. Oh, I picked all those schools because I knew that I liked the, – it's, it's the same as now. I knew I liked words, mm-hmm. and I knew I liked music. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't quite figure out whether I wanted to write songs and music or whether I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm going to look at schools that are good at – words and music <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I eventually went okay I guess I'll work on music because I know less about music than I do about words so I'll go to school for music so I went to Grove City College in Pennsylvania for music and unfortunately um, when I got there to study com- to study to study music performance there was one other performance major as a guy named Tim Hoffman who was studying drums and he was great, but we were the only two people there who had any aspirations to perform. Really? <clears throat> Everybody else was there for education. And so October of my freshman year, I had this... Oh, I had a pivot back then. Here's a, here's a major turning point for you back when. Um, I just knew I wanted to sing and write songs and write. But I was at the school, and we were all sitting around the lunch table after theory, me and all the music majors, all of whom except for Tim were music ed majors, and uh, everybody started going around the table and saying, this, uh, this is uh, where I'm going to teach when I, when I graduate. Hey, where are you going to teach when you graduate? And everyone went around and, you know, someone was like, well, I'm pretty sure my teacher's going to, ret- my, my music teacher's going to retire in a couple of years. I'm going to go back there. I'm waiting for so-and-so to die. I'm going to go back there. <laughs> like, it was basically like most people wanted to go back to their hometown or somewhere nearby and teach music. And fill the, yeah. And they were good at it. Like they looked like people who were really good at that. When they took brass methods and wanted to learn the basics of all the brass instruments to go teach band a little um, or a lot, um, they all looked like they knew what they were doing. And they got to me and they're like, so Katie, where are you going to teach when you graduate? I was like, I'm going to go sing and write songs. And they looked at me and said, like, this is like, really, they said, what are you going to do for a living? And I said, I'm going to sing and write songs. <laughs> and I, um, we finished lunch, and then I walked to my mailbox, and I had a letter from Tina Harris, who was a friend of mine who I, went, I was in show choir with. Mm-hmm. I was really into show choir. We had four show choirs in high school, and it was a big deal. Um, and That's I wore awesome. a lot. Of, I still have scars from sequins. I, had, I wore a lot of sequins. <laughs> Um, and we did lots of jazz hands, therefore lots jazz of, there hands. was, there was blood, there was blood. So <laughs> I went to my mailbox and got, I had a physical letter from Tina Harris because people still wrote letters then. Grove City was where I learned that email existed. Um, this is 1996. <laughs> and so 
I opened this letter and she said, hey, Katie, I left George Mason, which is in Virginia, and I went to this school in Nashville called Belmont University. And um, you can study all kinds of music here, by the way. And they have recording studios and you can study not just classical music. You do study classical music, but you study all kinds of music. And by the way, I also am going to this discussion group with this guy named Kevin Twitt. And uh, he is having this kind of Bible study where they're talking about all of life as though God had something to do with it. And so in that letter, I heard, one, there's a music program <laughs> that you can do all kinds of music in, but it's still legitimately in college, so my parents would get it. Um, and also... Uh, I found out about Kevin, who ended up marrying. So I went to I went to RUF, um, Reformed University Fellowship, for about seven years. Um, like just stayed till forever. <laughs> Me too. You know, yeah. you know, we just stayed forever, like yeah. you. Um, and uh, yeah, and that phrase, um, "All of life as though God has something to do with it," changed everything. Like I feel mm. like when she said that, I went. Oh, I know that. Of course I know that. I've always thought that. But then I started to realize as I tried that frame of reference on that that wasn't necessarily what I was hearing. Um, and I don't mean at Grove City College. I just meant throughout my church experience. Yeah. It wasn't what was implied. It wasn't what I can infer from the teaching. I could infer that God was kind of interested in some stuff and other stuff. Eh, you know, whatever. So um, I... I called Belmont and got a brochure and transferred my next year and ended up at Belmont Yeah, and stayed in Nashville and yeah. studied commercial vocal performance. Because you wanted to write songs and sing them. Yeah. And then you did write songs and sing them. What, is that, what did that look like after college, even during college? Yeah, it started during college. Well, I was in school. I met a bunch of I met a bunch of our good friends there. I was in school with Jill Phillips and Andy Gullihorn. They were older, and everyone was intrigued by them. They were the coolest. Yeah. They, they so were cool? the they were like the they were the uh, the, the, the prom king and queen. <laughs> I was gonna say like Johnny yeah. and June of Belmont. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> they, were like, they were, yeah, they were just, and they were so sweet, and they were so inviting. Um, and you were there. Wait, how long were you at Belmont? Uh, six months. Then I was I, as a as a paid student, like six, six seven months. As a person who was just there, like five years. You yeah. were so smart. <laughs> I get I mean, asked I to come speak to now, so I figure like that's probably fine. That's probably fine. Yeah, but that's when I started dating good. my my wife, she was still a student, so I probably spent more time there her senior year than I did the one year I actually was a, a student. That's what I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> that's when I. Saw saw you around yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um and that's when let's see so jill and andy were there and um sandra mccracken sandra and i were in the same year and um we kind of ended up hanging out like after we graduated we were in the back of a bus together going to an ruf summer conference and started making animal noises and we bonded <laughs> like we had tried to hang out it was kind of like people had tried to hang out like put us on friend You'd blind been forced dates. friends yeah yeah and it just never kind of, and then something, I don't know, something turned right about then. I love it. So I went to Belmont, and I studied music and studied songwriting. And, you know, it's it really is, Belmont really is a really neat forum to get to try it all on. You know, you have all these 
um, seminars and master classes where you can try stuff and people go, do you know when you're singing that you do this with your hands? And when you, when you, you know that phrase you just sang, that sounded exactly like so-and-so. And you start to find your thing and try it on. That was, that was good for me. I mm. really needed that lab. Um, but, oh, my senior year, um, I made friends with Blaine Chastain and Deborah Chastain, who were not, they weren't both Chastains then, Blaine and Deborah. Um, and, uh, and Blaine knew a guy named Kenny Varga and he did records and, um, we talked and, and I made a record my senior year called laryngitis and which is, it's all, you know, when you think about your first record, well, I don't know. Your first record is pretty kicking. No, uh, it's, it's still on the internet and I wish it wasn't. Really? No. I don't think mine's on the internet. I think we managed to. God bless to, you. <laughs> it's an attic, but yeah. Oh man, every so often, and I had a song on there called "Fanatic in the Attic," and it was kind of my song my senior year. And every so often, someone brings it up, and I just brought it up and made it fresh on a podcast again. And now, <laughs> and now, so here's hoping. Just we'll just leave that there, and maybe you can just scrub it. Oh no, it's, it's out there. <laughs> but it's—I don't think you can find it. So. Yeah. No, you have to make your first record to learn. Almost the most important thing you learn about your first record is. Oh, I need to make conscious decisions. <laughs> well, I had to get some guts. Yeah, exactly. It took me a couple records to go, no, this is actually what I want. Mm-hmm. You know, when um, for me as a 19, 20, 21 year old girl, it was hard for me to say, oh, I mean, because you've got all these session players around and all these studio guys who are like, oh, you should totally do it this way. And uh, you start to realize, oh, wait a minute. I might actually have a way that I think is a good way to do it too. Yeah. And it's tricky if you're not much of an instrumentalist to put into words that an instrumentalist can understand um, or will uh, accede to <laughs> and, and say, this is what I'm shooting for. And not sound crazy and get the idea across. Yeah. It's like, no, I can't. I got I to gotta get the words, um, which is... One reason that I really like having my husband as my producer a lot these days. Yeah. <laughs> one of the best musicians I know. Yeah. Oh, man, yeah. Um, yeah, Kenny is really, uh, yeah, Kenny Hudson is my husband. And yeah. uh, he is he is really handy for that. Um, we, I mean, we have good fights along the way, but we get stuff done, and, and I love <laughs> his sensibilities, and he listens to my sensibilities. So, um, yeah, that I mean, that... That's a good. That was a good learning process along yeah. the way. So there's some stuff I go, wow, that turned out weird, and other stuff where I go, oh, I really, yeah, that that was actually what I was shooting for. Yeah. Yeah. So now, at certain points in that uh, that story, was making your own music your living. It was, yeah. And what did that look like for you? Um, so I so senior year, I started playing. I mean, being in college, there was a bit of a. Um, there's a bit of a luxury of time mm-hmm. to being able to um, book yourself. So mostly when I was in college, I, I started booking myself and was starting to kind of make reasonable money, um, at least for a single girl uh, who didn't have anything else she had to do except for pay rent <laughs> and eat, you know. So, But I was doing that. And where, where were you playing? What kind of places? I was playing in coffee shops and in colleges. Coffee shops don't usually pay much except for like, you know, a few that are kind of venues too. And, yeah. Um, but colleges were, were a lot of it, a lot of Christian colleges. Yeah. Yeah, co- Christian colleges and churches in large part. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I could get into some other kind of rooms. Like I would, I'd play some other spots like Eddie's Attic and some other, I kind of got into that, um, on album number two after yeah. college. Um, and was kind of doing that indie folk circuit, um, and not doing so much church stuff. And that was a tricky spot for me to be in. Um, and after album number three, too, because I had these feet in both worlds and wasn't real good at reconciling that yet, mm. um, that I could be a Christian singing these songs. And, um, and uh, how about this? I couldn't figure out how to market that. Sure. I could figure out how to talk about that. In a sense, um, I could talk to people at churches. I could talk to everybody else and happily do it. And somehow I got away with doing things like playing in clubs. Like I could play at the Six String Cafe or Cat's Cradle or something in North Carolina or Eddie's Attic. And somehow I got away with, um, no, not somehow got away. I know how I got away with it. I could sing, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus or Nothing But the Blood of Jesus in the middle of a set of other songs and have people who were who didn't come for that um, really resonate with it. Yeah. Because I do think that there's something to be said for when you wholeheartedly, genuinely go for something you really care about, mm-hmm. um, and that something at the center of your heart, uh, people people go for it. People yeah. resonate and listen. And go, oh, that's something that's making her tick. Yeah. And so I got away with that. I was. It was funny. I was kind of in this. Um, it's almost more offensive in the in those scenarios to. I mean, it is. It's like offensive to hide who you really are yeah. to try to convince them. Yeah. That you're, you know, to be some sort of subversive. Yes. You know, version of yourself. Yes. Like what people want to see is if you really believe that, sing it as loud as you can. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so I loved to do it. Um, it it was tricky for me to figure out when. How about this? When the internet came along, when the <laughs> internet came along and people Googled me, if the if the things that were coming up yeah. at the top of it were things that were obviously Christian, I was losing gigs over it. Yeah. So that was a hard spot to be in. And that musically. was right, probably that, that sort Man. of happened right at the time you right were Right as we were getting traction. And things were starting to move. Yes. So, so what happened then? And so, and it was also right as I was marrying Kenny Hudson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Kenny and I did our thing together and we wrote songs together. And when the songs that we wrote together were... We still kind of pulled it off for a while. We were doing love songs and hymns and things. And really it came to uh, <laughs> what happened was Kenny got asked to play with Over the Rhine. And, we, and I said, you should go do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were the band that, like, they're why I started writing songs. Yeah. So I was like, you should go do that. Yeah. And so he did that for a while. How many years did he play with them? can't remember. Okay. <laughs> Quite a, yeah. honestly. So what did that mean for you and your crew? So, because you guys so, had had a thing that was uh-huh. really cool. Thanks. I mean, it and still is, but yeah. yeah. But when you, you weren't able to sort of lean on that as your uh-huh. main outlet, what was your life like? Well, it meant that Kenny went out and did that, and I stayed home and wrote songs and did some other jobs and things. Um, and did other projects for a while. I was writing, I was writing songs, writing with other people, taking on other work just to pay bills too. Mm-hmm. Um, and for one year I went out with Over the Rhine. They were pretty great and, um, and brought me out along to come do merch. Yeah. So I had a year of just kind of hanging out being a band wife. And that was kind of great because yeah. it was fun to hang around and great to get paid to go hang out and just go write songs See a great and be band around. Every night. Yeah. yeah, it's inspiring. Yeah. 
for sure, and hang out with Kenny. So yeah. So for a year of that, I did that. Um, so is that around the time that you did, started doing the Coltrane? And stuff? that was oh yeah. Thank you very much. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I had time to do Coltrane Railroad. Thank you. Yeah, tell so us that about that. So that was the other, and that is one of my favorite things I've ever gotten to do. It's um, so fun. I uh, so I started right. So Chris Donahue, who had worked with me on my last solo record. Um, Chris is a bass player. He still, I think he still plays with Emmylou Harris pretty often. Um, but I was babysitting and watching Chris's daughter, mm -hmm. um, his little girl, and uh, was writing songs and doing that and, and all these things. And I was writing these little songs for his daughter Maeve when she, when I was watching her. I'd be walking around East Nashville with this little girl on a baby bjorn and just singing. And when I just hang out and sing, I revert to jazz. Jazz is my natural home base musically. Mm -hmm. And so... I was writing these little songs for her about naps and sharing and and life as you see it through the eyes of a one-year-old. And um, Chris heard me while I was playing blocks with Maeve one day, and he said, so um, wh that's what you're doing there. <laughs> that sounds good. Do you want to work on that? And Chris is a fantastic songwriter. He is one of my... Man, it, he is one of the easiest people to write with. Every time mm. I get together with Chris Donahue, we end up writing songs I like. I should go write with Chris Donahue some more again. It's been a little while. That's the biggest takeaway <laughs> from it. Yeah. yeah. This is good for me to talk about, Andy. Thanks. Um, so, so Chris and I wrote three albums of Coltrane Railroad, and we got to do some fun stuff. Um, Which was kids jazz. It, oh, yeah. It's, not, it's, it's jazz not cold, for kids. For the, for the listening audience, it's Cole, C-O-A-L. Train. Train, T-R-A-I-N. T-R-A-I-N, yeah. It's funny, um, depending on whether you see it here or hear it first, what you think it is. But yeah, we did three albums of pretty legitimate jazz because yeah. Chris um, is, a, is a monster of a bass monster. player. And he would bring all these amazing players, um, Michael Hulsher and, um, gosh, and Aaron Smith. Do you know Aaron Smith? Drummer? Yeah. I mean, and I've met him once or twice, but I don't we know We had him. this gig one time where um, we got a gig in Detroit, and he said, and we brought Aaron along, we flew to Detroit, and he said, hey, um, do you guys mind if, I, like, if we get there early enough, can I swing by the Motown Museum? Um, I was just gonna, I was gonna hop it, and we're like, yeah, sounds good, maybe we'll go along too. So we went along, and... Um, we went along, and it ended up that Aaron was being interviewed because he's on all of these early Motown albums. For real? Yeah. So I Aaron know is, him as like the guy from the seventy sevens, right? Yeah, and uh, oh. I mean he's done all manner of stuff. I had no idea. Yeah, and he played on all these early Motown records. He played on Temptations albums. Yeah. So go, yeah, go find some early Aaron Holy Smith, cow. some any Aaron Smith. So okay. So you know, I had this this. This bass player and this drummer who were just freaking believable. Um, and, you know, sometimes I was momming. Uh, oh, yeah, we had, so we had a baby at this point. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I was, oh, sometimes I was momming and sometimes I would like, it was like this other life where I would hop out and go sing jazz with this amazing band. And where were so, you playing? Kid jazz, kids music. What's the, what are the venues for that? Uh, uh, we played things like a, Oh gosh, we'd end up playing at um, the library has a concert series. Mm -hmm. We'd end up playing at concert series for I mean, when different cities, um, artistic area, we'd play at theaters in Nashville. We've played at the Botanical Gardens. Um, and favorite gig was when when Story was five weeks old. We played at Lincoln Center, which was just fantastic. Wow, 
It was the best. Like I had to have that. We booked this maybe eight months out or so, and um, I, so we had to find an understudy who could do it in case I had a baby and somehow couldn't pull it off. Like depending on the timing. But yeah, we took five week old story to New York and went and played at the atrium at Lincoln Center, which is it was winter and just packed full of kids and so much fun. Oh my goodness! It was so much fun. That's yeah. a blast. So now and then we get to do some Coltrane Railroad. And then, um, and then my girlfriends all started having babies too. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few of my dearest ones, um, Sandra and Flo and Ellie Holcomb and I, San- so Sandra McCracken, Flo Oaks and um, uh, Ellie Holcomb and I ended up uh, starting a band where we did and do um, Bible songs for kids Yeah, called Rain for Roots. And that's what I'm doing. And if I do that for the next 20 years, I'll be real good. I love it. I'll be and happy then, so the with first that. album, which came out when our youngest was a baby, which was mm-hmm. perfect timing. Yeah. And we listened. I think you were at our first concert. I oh, was yeah. looking we at some at pictures a, the other yeah, day. Yeah, we've been to many of them. Yeah, we yeah. played at Ugly Mugs. Um, I think my kids sang on a couple of those records too, didn't they? They played on Rain for Root. They sang on Rain for Roots records. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. We've been, but, our, our, but all that to say, we listened to a ton of those. And that one, the all the lyrics are from Sally... Oh, the first one, yeah. Big yeah. Stories for Little Ones. They're all from this little Bible. So we know Sally Ola Jones wrote the Jesus yeah. Story Bible. Who was on an earlier episode of this podcast. Oh, yeah. I caught that. I She's was, amazing. yeah. Yeah, she is. I could listen to Sally talk all day. It soothes me and lowers my heart rate <laughs> and reminds, and makes me feel like, like... This is why English accents oh, exist. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I wish you could see her eyes on it. You, you can see her eyes when she talks. It's amazing. <laughs> um, but... Uh, she wrote this little the, this little Bible storybook that's covered in lamy fleece that's called the Hugga Bible. That it's you just so cute. You, it's so cute, and it has ten poems in it um, that each tell a Bible story. And in each of them, I mean, she is the master at saying that God is the hero of the story. So this is a book for little little ones, younger than the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in each one, she does this beautiful job of saying that God is the hero of the story. And David and Goliath, um, and and in Moses, who saved a baby in a boat, um, who kept that baby's boat afloat. And they're so beautiful. So we got together with Sally, which is a treat in and of itself. And she said, "Yeah, you could do that. Would you? Would you please do that?" And um, we took those ten and turned them into an album. We put music to them. Yeah. And that was how we started things. And then the next album. We girls all got together, and um, uh, when we when we did this one, uh, it was all about the parables. We were all hanging out and having a wonderful meal, and uh, we started flipping around, like flipping around in our Bibles on our phones, and we kept running across the parables and how they all started with the kingdom of heaven is like this, the kingdom of heaven is like this, mm. and we went, well, that sounds like somewhere to go. Also, because Kevin Twitt had warned us. Um, Years and years ago, have you ever heard Kevin say that um, Jesus didn't always tell the parables to explain things so much as to confuse people? <laughs> like sometimes he did it to make things less clear, not more clear. Mm-hmm. But then again, um, when Jesus talked to children, um, he tended to tell children things that he didn't tell other people. So. Mm. We thought, well, let's give the parables to children then. Yeah. So, so we did that one, and the last one was an Advent one, and we're making one now. Oh, good. Yeah. We Is just, there a theme for this one? 
Uh, we don't, we, we kind of think so, but if I say it, then I'll get in trouble. Cause we, we're just, <laughs> yeah, we're just, it's, it's that wonderful bubbling. Everything is starting mm. to flow stage. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. That's I can't so wait fun. to do We've it. We've loved all those, those records. They've been just wonderful gifts to our family. Thank you. Okay. So yeah, you've been doing that. Your husband's on the road a lot. You've got two kids. Uh-huh. Uh, he plays for Crowder now. So mm-hmm. he's, and they travel a lot. They do. They did. When Story was in kindergarten, our daughter's name is Story. When daughter, when uh, our daughter was in kindergarten, uh, they did 200 dates. <laughs> Holy cow. And I think they might be pushing for that this year. And yeah. there's not, that's just not 200 shows. That's getting to the shows, getting home from the shows. Yep. So that's yeah. a lot of travel. It is a lot of travel. So you spend a lot of time homeschooling uh-huh. with your kids. Yes. And it's you, the three of you here. <laughs> and keeping the children alive. Yes. yes. <laughs> That's exactly yes. what I do. Yeah. And then uh, a year ago. And then a year ago. Okay. So last summer. Uh, so in the meantime, I'm, 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 yes, I spend my time homeschooling with the kids, um, writing, writing songs, working on some personal writing projects. I kind of um, stopped writing other essays and stuff for other people for a while so that I could work on some personal projects. And then, um, a little bit ago, I got this scholarship to go study poetry in Martha's Vineyard at this thing called the Martha's Vineyard Institute for Creative Writing. Um, I got it the year before and they deferred it to last summer. And in the meantime, Flo from Rain for Roots, um, and other stuff, uh, she got one too. I said, Hey Flo, why don't you try to, why don't you try to get one of these two and we can hang out. And she got one for fiction. So we made a girl's trip of it. So, uh, Kenny was on the road. I dropped the kids off in Pennsylvania with my folks and we go up to Martha's Vineyard and we have this amazing trip. So for two artists who are also moms to go take a road trip up to Martha's Vineyard and go study our craft for a week was just so, just such a godsend, so refreshing, mm. so amazing. So, you know, we're hanging out in this this little house that's somebody's guest house slash art studio and walking to the bus and riding across Martha's Vineyard and going and studying with these amazing writers every day and spending just hours and hours writing and remembering full-time what it is we love to do, mm-hmm. which is, which, you know, when you're momming, it's kind of, you're grabbing it in pieces, Yeah. which by the way, is real good for an artist. I have to say having to learn how to fight for it is real good for a person. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it's very focusing. Why? What do you think? Because, um, for, well, have, I'll look at it from two sides. As a mom, I have to, especially a homeschooling mom who's with my kids a lot, I have to knock it lost in just being a mom. Um, my kids need to know that I am still Katie Hudson. They, they, they need to still know who I am. And in order to mom them well, to mother and parent them, they need me as their point of reference. Um, there's this book I love called The Art of Family by Gina Bria. Um, you ever heard this? I She's think a family it, anthropologist. It. it is. I recommend it. It is my that and the art of family by uh, and the art of family by her and what is a family by Edith Schaefer are kind of my my go tos. Yeah. Um, but she makes this wonderful case. Gina Bria does that. Children need to know who their parents are and like really know their strengths, their weaknesses, their struggles because you're their you're their starting point. And so you got to be honest with kids about the things you deal with, the things that you go through, in order for them to figure out where they can even begin. You know, <laughs> they have to know 
um, yeah, they have to know, okay, these are the strengths and the weaknesses in my upbringing so that they can actually get somewhere. Yeah. Um, that gives them a good push off the wall to start. So, um, so, so it's so, important. To, yeah. yeah. It's important for me artistically though, too, to go, what do I, other than raising my children, what's, what is most important for me to do? If I've got 10 minutes to write, what do I really care about? Um, yeah, so it feels like, uh, as opposed to a snake that's eating its tail, it feels like two things that feed each other and grow mm. each other. Um, it, it feels good to me to have to work hard for it because, you know, you probably found this too. From when we were all single and had endless swaths of time to create, um, it's not like I created in all that time. It, I don't think that's <laughs> always necessarily... There's, it's nice to do for a bit. So when I had a week at Martha's mm-hmm. Vineyard, I was, it, I got at it. I got a lot done that yeah. week. I got more done than maybe I've ever creatively got done in my life because I realized the value of a week after mm-hmm. raising kids for six years. So I had this week, and I got a lot done. And more to the point, um, I made plans for what to do when I got back. So the projects that I was working on, I made these lists of this is what you can do to continue this project and get it done when you've got 10 minutes to yourself, when you have an hour to yourself. Yeah. So I came back with this um, this eight and a half by 11 page folded in half that had list after list of this is what you do when you have the time to do it. Um, which actually takes time to even come up with. You know, right? you have to have the yeah. time to organize your thoughts to do it. So I had this amazing it week. It definitely helps to have goals as a creative person, especially a creative person without a lot of time. For sure. To know how to focus that time and energy, yeah. Yeah, to use it well. So, yeah, um, yeah so I did that that week. Yeah, and so then, And I got on the ferry, and I went to Boston, and we stayed with our friends, Kelly and David. And while I was there... I said, um, hey, Flo, does this ever happen to your body? And she's like, nope, that never happens to me. And the next day I went to Pennsylvania, and I went to pick up my kids and went and got a mammogram. And um, the, the people at the little hospital there were real grumpy with me for showing up at the last minute. But I went, something's not right. This isn't yeah. good. So... Um, it's kind of not good when you go in and everyone is hacked off with you for being there and showing up at the last minute, and then they start getting nice to you. So <laughs> oh. so after mammogram number one, the tech started getting real nice so you're to me. you with strangers in Boston. Well, now I'm with you're strangers in, in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, okay. Yeah, now I've moved on to Pennsylvania to go okay. pick up my kids yeah. on the so way they're, back they're to nice, Nashville. They're being nice to you. They're being nice to me. They do a second mammogram, and they say, hey, we need you to go across the hall here and we need to we need to do an ultrasound we need to look a little closer at some things so i go across the hall and i have a few minutes to wait uh they do the ultrasound i have more time to wait and i pull out my purse um for something to do with my head because this is not looking good um and i open up a book of poetry that i wrote when i was 24 and that i took out on the road to sell with water deep when i was out with them i got to open for them once when i was and it was, I had this grand run around the country with Waterdeep. And I made these little books of poetry and I stitched them in upholstery fabric and took those with me. So I, I had one of these that I'd taken to this poetry thing and I opened it up and I opened it up to this page with this poem that was kind of like a, a, like a Job and God kind of conversation that I'd had when I was 24. And I opened to this line that said, I will come like chemo to kill so you can live. And I went, oh... 
I have cancer. <laughs> and I had oh. never, ever used any kind of cancer imagery or metaphor in any of my writing. And I felt like line. I had this one line, I will come like chemo to kill so you can live. And I went, oh, I have cancer, which was a really nice heads up before somebody else came in and told me that. Mm. Um, that feels like a mercy to me. So when the nurse came in being really nice and telling me that I had what looked like a really aggressive cancer called inflammatory breast cancer, um, I was a little ready and I could just put my emotional shield up for a while and take notes like the Dickens to find out it, that was time for me to get stuff done and get all the information I could so we could start fighting. So I was real grateful to have a heads up. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, I ran, we ran back to Nashville. My mom came with me. My parents moved in for nine months and we started fighting what ended up being inflammatory breast cancer. If you Google it, if you, have, if you have the symptoms that look like that, you either get mastitis, and I was no longer nursing babies, and, or this. So it was kind of like, oh, that doesn't look so good. And then, yeah, so I had this cancer that... Which is, I mean, from what I learned, uh -huh. it was, it's, it's um, very deadly. It's very deadly, it's very rare. Um, and it doesn't, here's my quick, here's my quick PSA on inflammatory breast cancer. All breast, all breast cancer does not happen as a lump. This, this looks like, um, warmth, inflammation, redness, swelling. So ladies, should you ever see such a thing, run to your doctor fast. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's all of like two or 3% of can, of breast cancers. Um, and then within that, I have this weird little subset. I was talking to my oncologist yesterday, and by the way, yesterday I got I am cancer free, which is really nice to hear after a year of treatment. <laughs> um, but I said, did I do anything? Can you think of anything that I did or I could be doing now? Um, because, you know, of course that goes through your head beforehand, like, oh, crud, how did I mess this all up? But afterwards you go, how can I not mess this up? I was like, I want her to be real honest. If I did do something, if there's something that I should not be doing, tell me about it. Yeah. And she said, you got struck by lightning, <laughs> which is both comforting and disquieting. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, let's start at the, the from the top down, what did yeah. that year look like? What was your life like? You had these plans of what you're going to do when you get home. Yeah. I have a feeling those <laughs> did not get implemented the way you thought. No, you think you're going to go home. I thought I was going to go home and I was going to homeschool my daughter through first grade and Kenny was going to keep playing. Actually, both of those things still happened. <laughs> Kenny stayed on the road except um, David Crowder really graciously, he... He is such a kind man, people. <laughs> um, he sent Kenny home off the road for a few months and said, you go, go take care of things. So Kenny was largely home through chemo. Um, here, I'll give you the quick rundown of yeah. what, the, what the year looked like. So I got home, got um, inflammatory breast cancer um, doubles or triples inside and multiplies every few, every few days. Other breast oh cancers grow over the course of months. You have a little more time. But this one grows um, wicked lightning fast. So I got home, and I happened to have a super, um, a, a super fiery, amazing, passionate oncologist who got on it fast. And so within days, I was in chemo, and I had 18 weeks of chemo every three weeks, and then I had a double mastectomy, and then I had, radi I had 30 rounds of radiation, and I had my ovaries out. <laughs> 
and um, and a partridge in a pear tree in the meantime. A million tests. I think so far this year I've I've been counting I've had 106 doctor's appointments. And Holy so cow. yeah, so this year has been uh, all treatment all the time in large part. So that's um and it's been a year. And your and folks were living here. Yeah, my for... parents were fantastic. They live in Pennsylvania and they took their airstream and they pulled it into the side yard, and we and we put in camper hookups for them. And my parents moved in uh, and took care of us, which mm. is amazing. Um, uh, one of my friends pointed out it's kind of amazing that not only were they able to, um, and like physically capable, and had the time in life, um, but that they were actually willing to, because yeah. not everybody would. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird to me to think that, but it makes me realize they're pretty amazing. Yeah, they just mm. moved in for nine months and took care of us. So. Um, and at the time, your kids were how old? Seven. Story and three? was six, six, and Del was three. Okay. Uh-huh. So. Um, so what are they? What was their experience of this? So their experience of it was, I came back from, uh, uh, you know, I drive into my parents' driveway in Pennsylvania after I find out I have cancer. I. Um, after keeping my guard up uh, at the doctor, I called Kenny and bawled. He, he was on the road, and we both had a good cry. And then I pulled it back together again, drove home, uh, and my dad was standing there. Um, and, I mean, yeah, my dad's a soldier, and whew, it, uh, when something upsets my dad, it's, 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 uh, it's hard to take. So I bawled mm. again. And my daughter saw that and said, what's wrong? was real. I was like, give me just a minute. I'll take a deep breath and I'll tell you what's going on. And so for my six-year-old, this is, I think this was, I'm, I'm glad I was able to tell it to her like I did. I said, here's the deal. Um, I have a sickness in my body. It's called cancer. Um, I do not feel sick right now, Story Jane. But um, in order to get me better, they're going to have to give me a lot of medicine this year and I'm going to have to go to a lot of doctors this year. And... Um, I, the medicine is going to make me feel sick and I am probably going to throw up some and my hair is going to fall out <laughs> and she's looking and at me like, known this what? For what? An hour, two yeah. hours? Yeah. I said, and they're probably going to have to take my breasts off. And she was, <laughs> at which point my six year old and, and the sweetest six year old away laughs like, this is unbelievable. Are yeah. you kidding well, What me? else do you do with that information? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said, and then I'm going to have to get something that's kind of like a bunch of x-rays to zap any of it that's left. And that's what's going to happen this year. And um, and our friends are going to help us because I knew they would. Mm. And um, things are not going to be like we thought they were going to be this year. Um, and God is going to take care of us. And that's that, I think that's about a paraphrase of what I said. And just like a six-year-old Will said, okay. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of the, wow. the, that was pretty much what I told her. I'm like, you know, you can't really explain it to a three-year-old. Yeah. Except that I had to get a port put in right around my clavicle here. They put this little device mm-hmm. under my skin so that they can um, give, so that they don't constantly have to be giving me IVs and they can actually numb it. So I didn't feel it a lot of the time. And uh, my three-year-old had a ha- habit of headbutting me. So uh, hmm. I, that we had to work on breaking that. <laughs> yeah, so this has been, uh, I don't know, Andy, you got questions? <laughs> I, I don't mean, even know where to begin to talk about. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I'm mean, i so I, deep I in it. So many questions. I mean, yeah, you are so deep in it. So yeah, as of yesterday, yeah. cancer-free. 
So as of yesterday, I'm cancer free. Yeah. And uh, what does that what does that mean? Uh, I mean, so what does that mean clinically, and what does that mean to you? Clinically, it means that there is no clear evidence of cancer. On the other hand, when they say it, they don't say you're cancer free. They say we don't see any cancer. But there's kind of the tone of just so you know, you had a real aggressive cancer, and we will be watching you real closely for five years. Mm-hmm. I continue on more medicines in the meantime, and um, but it, for me, it means that I'm not constantly going to the doctor. It means that I have various checkups, and um, but I see my doctor once a month, and I don't have three doctor's appointments a week. Because it's, it's so time-consuming. Cancer, that's the other thing. Cancer just takes up so much of your time. You start to go, eh, treatment. It's just, it, it, physically, this year, it wore me out. Yeah. I mean, wore me down. Um, and, yeah, I, how about the, this is what it means to me on this side of it. I am worn out from a year of physically and emotionally fighting and I'm reading this really good book called The Body Keeps the Score um, about physical and emotional trauma. And it talks about people who are deeply traumatized. And when people are deeply traumatized, um, one of the things that happens is that they lose their ability to play. Um, when they show war veterans Rorschachs, you know, the inkblot images, yeah. People who can make images, even horrific images, out of a Rorschach, can, um, that looks kind of hopeful <laughs> because their brain can still play. When they see nothing in one, then you've got a problem. Wow. And I have decided that what's real important to me this upcoming year, my assignment this year for myself is to play. Hmm. So um, I am keeping my expectations, in a sense, for myself real low. I'm going to play with my kids a lot. I'm still going to homeschool them. Um, And I'm kind of excited about that because it leaves a lot of room for all of us to play. I think everybody in our family needs to play this year. Hmm. Um, And this last year, the way that I have dealt with it and gotten through it is I have written and written a lot. And it is that week at Martha's Vineyard that I was talking about was such a grace because I feel like I got my tools together to fight this year. Mm-hmm. And the way that we do fighting as artists, um, and everybody else ought to, because everybody makes something, but the way that we fight is to create. When something is trying, I have a poem um, somewhere in this collection of poetry I just wrote called You Cannot Uncreate Me. Because what cancer does is it mm. pr- proliferates copies of things, but it cannot unmake me. And um, that's what it feels like cancer tries to do. I mean, it can kill you. But it cannot unmake who you are. Um, so I did a lot of writing this year about um, what it felt like to be in the middle of it and to work through it. And uh, writing and writing and writing feels like um, make it, making in the face of something that's trying to kill you feels revolutionary. Hmm. So that's how I did it this year. Wow. So I just finished this year, and now I put a book of poetry together. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I'm doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So when you get struck by lightning, how does your interaction with God, what does that look like in a, in a season like this? Because I imagine it changes or uh-huh. it can't stay the same. Yeah, it can't stay the same. How about this? 
whatever's there probably gets more so. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I think it probably um, it probably takes the veil off any assumptions that you have about where your relationship with God is. Um, because you are suddenly grasping for whatever gives you life. And I was really grateful to find that, um, how about this? It's not the first hard thing I've gone through, so I don't feel like I completely had the rug pulled out from under me. And it was nice to know that, um, uh, what's the opposite of rock climbing? What is it when you take a rope and you go down a hill? Oh, rappelling. Uh, if you start yeah. rappelling, it's good to tug on the rope first. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you like, if a lion starts coming and you have to, oh, I've never used this metaphor. Maybe I'll get a poem out of it. <laughs> but like, if you're at the top of a hill and a lion starts coming your way, and you suddenly, and you have to suddenly tie a rope to get down a cliff to get away from it because that's yeah. the only way you have to go. You know, hopefully you've got good knots tied. And hopefully you've got something sturdy that you tied it on to, you know? And I found that I had something sturdy that it, that I was tied on to. Hmm. So as I, um, I'm a little overly pleased with that metaphor that it's I just came really up with. really good. <laughs> I'm, I'm only half paying attention now because I'm going, wow, that's a great metaphor. Yeah. And I'm starting to see if that metaphor holds. I'll have to think about that for a while. But I think it does. <laughs> but I like the image too. You kind of still got to give it that little yank before you jump, just to be sure. Yeah, so here's hoping. Yeah, it'd probably be a good idea. So so this was a year of going, okay, um, when I, you take a good hard look at death, um, you know, I think we we do a lot of living um, with death inside eye, you know. It's kind of in your peripheral. And as Christians, part of what you do when you, when you, Practice Christianity when you read your Bible, when you go to church, when you gather with other believers. Hopefully, what you are doing is reminding yourself that death is a defeated foe, that you have that we are coming up against death, and um, and death has already been um, tested and found um, weak. <laughs> that Jesus already went, I am stronger than death, and here, come follow me, because. Um, I've gone ahead and defeated it. So death is a defeated foe is a phrase that we've used a lot in our house. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's a it's something that you, it's the same exact thing. This year has been the exact same thing that I've been practicing my whole life of Christianity, of being a Christian. Um, and Thankfully, <laughs> when it really comes down to it, or when it's come down to it this far, um, it's still held. Hmm. Yeah, that this has been the hope that I have needed, um, and this has been the hope that I have been able to fall on. I have this friend, friend Margie Hack, and she has this fantastic phrase, um, to collapse into Jesus' marvelous hands. And I love hmm. that. And this year has been a lot of that. Oh, so I just came up with the title of this book of poetry. Yeah. Um, so I haven't said it in public yet. but um, So here's my, here it is, Andy. All right, I'm excited. <laughs> so um, I ran it by a few friends, and, um, and Kenny gave it a definite, that ought to be your title. But I'm going to call it Now I Lay Me Down to Fight. Because oh, wow. it, um, yeah, that feels huh. like it kind of gets to it. It's a... Uh, it's a line from one of the poems, and that feels like what I had to do this year. When I, I spent a lot of time in bed, and I spent a lot of time just surviving symptoms, 
And Kenny would say, your job is to rest because resting is how you fight. Mm. In the middle in the middle of cancer treatment, a lot of the times what you have to do is lay down and take it because the chemo that feels like it's killing you is is healing you. So, um, yeah, and recovering from the surgery. And during radiation, I mean, my skin just flat out came off. <laughs> it was like a Petri dish. Wow. So, uh, but what you do during during cancer, the way that you do it is you rest and you survive, and you let others minister to you and care mm. for you. Um, which is hard. Which is hard. <laughs> you let other people love you and care for you and nourish you and nurture you medically and spiritually and emotionally and in all the little ways. Yeah, it's, it is so, um, it is full-on humbling. But it's what you do to live. Yeah. And my job this year, the um, there were so many times, like as a mom, everything in you fights against it. Like as a parent, you saying letting somebody else do all the things that it feels like, no, it's my job. My job. My kids need me to get up, and they need me to be mom. It's like being mom right now means laying here mm-hmm. and healing so that you can be their mom for a long time. Mm. Um. And I had, there were so many days where I would be in my bed and um, just surviving chemo symptoms when one of my kids would sneak in and cuddle up with me. Mm-hmm. And it was the best thing. I mean, the best I can't medicine. Even <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the best thing. So I have two poems where I call Dell, my little boy, um, a blue eyed hot water bottle because <laughs> he's this little, he would hop in and get under the covers and just and mm. cuddle up. And it was the best thing for my spirit when my kids would come in and, and, um, and, come be near. I mean, they loved me so beautifully just by being children who needed my love and loving me. So, yeah. Wow. That's so beautiful. It makes me wonder in this next year and the next seasons of your life, are there other ways that that resting to fight manifests itself? Because it feels both like, well, that was a real thing, but also feels like kind of a, a... a way that we have to live sometimes in all sorts of situations, you know? And- yeah, I'm going to have to relearn. For one thing, um, I am I am weaker than I knew after a mm. year of cancer treatment. We actually, we had this day where we thought that cancer had come back with a vengeance. The day, oh my gosh, my the day of my son's birthday party, we're getting ready for this birthday party in the afternoon. And I went, Kenny, I have these... I have these hard, these hard lymph nodes that are like hard as a, hard like rocks, and it's totally scary when you have cancer because yeah. that's your lymph nodes are how things metastasize, and so I'm it's seven thirty in the morning and I am in traffic like running into Vanderbilt calling them on the way saying please can you check me out and thinking I have got a frost cupcakes for this birthday this afternoon but I have to find out if I have cancer, so I went in and uh, they did some blood work. And the nurse practitioner I was talking to said, hey, could you, um, if you don't mind, let's go ahead and do a CT scan because your liver numbers are really high. And um, so I just want to see if there's anything there. Wow. And I'm thinking, okay, but can you get it done by 1.30 because I have to frost cupcakes, <laughs> you know? I've got to frost these cupcakes so that I can have my son's birthday party this afternoon. Yeah. And uh, they did. And what I found out... Um, I had the CT scan done, and they called, like, as we're about to blow out the candles at my son's birthday, 
and, and said, hey, did you say that you'd been weightlifting? And I said, yeah, I started circuit training. So like <laughs> a week before I had started. Did circ- not see that coming. <laughs> I had started going to a circuit training gym because it felt so powerful after a year of cancer yeah. to lift weights, like lift heavier weights than I'd ever lifted before. Like spirit wise, I was in, I was ready to get my body in shape and my body apparently went hell no. <laughs> and so I could not. Yeah. So, so, uh, so my liver body completely freaked my body out, completely overloaded my liver, which is my body's way of saying, you should probably slow down. You are not as strong as you think you are. So this year, <laughs> oh my so there's an example of me thinking I was stronger than I was in a very, um, physical way. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, I, you're, you're totally right. There are so many ways this year that I am going to have to... You cannot pretend that cancer didn't happen. Yeah. Um, it's kind of constantly reminding you. I have all these reminders in my body. I had a little neuropathy, mm. which means some nerve damage. My toes tingle. And um, I have a little swelling in my arm from... There's this thing called lymphedema. They take If they take lymph nodes out, your arm can swell. And I'm, I'm going to get checked out about... Uh, Apparently, you can have a transplant for that now, which is crazy. Um, wow. I get, it's new surgery, and they have a new guy at Vanderbilt. So checking it out. But, uh, but other ways, um, practically speaking, this year after cancer, um, yeah, I need to play. I need to rest. And I need to realize, too, like I, I do not have as much as I think I have. Um, and I have less than I had before. Hmm. All in many ways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, phys- physically, that's true, and emotionally, that's kind of true. As far as, um, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to avoid getting to the caveat too fast because I have a caveat. <laughs> mm. But, um, but I am quicker to snap at my children. I am quicker to snap at anyone. I'm quicker to break down because um, this year I was. Um, push to the brink so often. And so I have to be aware of that. And so I am cutting back on the things that I expect of all of us a lot. Mm. Our house will probably be messier this year. We will probably not get as much done. We are going to stop and play. Um, I have a wise sister-in-law who's a counselor and was also a homeschooling mom. And she said, you know what, this year, how about anything that makes you go, (gasps) don't do those things. Anything this year that makes you go, do those things. Because what your kids need the most is for you to be well. Mm. In the long run, they we all need to be all together well. So this year, my job is to go, to find all the things that do that. The yeah. things that um, give all of us life. Yeah, my caveat is that the backhanded gift of cancer is that you find that, um, now it's, how about this? It's not a backhanded gift of cancer because cancer is not, there, there's nothing in cancer that's a gift and there's nothing about it. I got this fantastic card that said, I promise I will never call your illness a journey. Um, I will, <laughs> I will not, I will not say anything about your journey unless you're going on a cruise. It was something like that. So, but how about this? The very good gift of God in the face of something that tried to kill me um, is that you. It's it's one more place where you find that He goes deeper than our suffering. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and that he is more than able to take care of us. Um, yeah, I found yet again that I am, as I am diminished yet again, that I have a bigger God than I thought I did in all kinds of ways. Wow. So I guess, um, what's funny is there, it's real easy to remember that in the, quite honestly, it was real easy to remember that in the middle of cancer. Now that I'm getting up on my feet again and I like, I'm, listening to Eye of the Tiger. And, um, and you're like, all right, let's go. Let's get stuff done. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, come on, let's get, yeah. Um, I can't really do that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, man, thank you so much for sharing that. That's, that's uh, powerful and so amazing that you would gift me and, and us with that story. For sure. It's kind of heavy. No, it's, it's wonderful. Well, um, you wrote this book of poetry, yeah. Which you were, uh, you were hoping to raise enough money to publish it via Kickstarter. Which, in like two seconds, Kickstarter <laughs> was like, "Yes, you're going to be able to do that," and it's doing incredibly well. I'm so happy about it. And I wanted to make sure that we could do this in time to let uh, this audience know to go support this book. We tell us about it a little bit more, and yeah, and, it, um, um, it is a collection of I think 35 poems from this year that kind of follow through. Um, yeah, everything I was learning in the middle of cancer. And um and I'm super excited. Jody Hayes is my friend and she's a she's an amazing painter. Her stuff is all over the place, all over the country. And um she's a professor at Watkins and um the art school here in Nashville. And she's uh yeah, she's adding a bunch of paintings to it. Mm. And um David King at Extended Play Press makes these beautiful books. Heck, he designs them and creates them. Oh, wow. And um, that's that's the team. So they're taking what I've already done and and making something beautiful with it. It's kind of in their hands at this point. Yeah. Yeah. But I just I just titled them and put them all in order. And essentially they go from um my day of di- actually, you know what? They go from before my diagnosis. I went from back when I was at Martha's Vineyard, I yeah. found two poems that felt like they were hinting at me um that something was coming. And, um, and they go all the way through radiation. Um, and I had a poem at radiation where I basically said, I only wrote this poem to get it over with, which, uh, that's where I ended it as far as the poems that I wrote now. And then I went back and grabbed the poem from when I was 24 Mm. because it's kind of, um, a fairly intense love poem between me and God. It's, it's a fight, it's a wrestle, but it felt like. I'd take my prequel and tack it on the end because it felt like, yeah, it felt good to go back and remember that was where I started this journey. Yeah. Oh, I just called oh, it a journey. You, it a journey. Blah. you get to. I no, don't. it still makes me throw <laughs> up. <laughs> it does. It's where I started this, um, yeah, trip. Yeah. <laughs> well, would you maybe to, to finish this uh, interview, would you share a poem with us? For sure. Um, Okay, this one's called Cancer Poet. Cancer is an overgrowth, a kudzu, tangling and strangling legitimate life. Chemo is a killing, a burning out, burning down to ashy carbon indiscriminately. But cancer, did you know that I am a poet? My job is to call through the chaos with tweezers and magnifier. I have wings on my shoulder blades and ankles, just big enough for hovering me inches above the terrain, traversing without smothering my subject. 
With pen and pocket and fingers and eyes, I cipher meaning, siphoning liquid beauty that seeps from the edges into a tiny vial. Taking pains with my pain, it fruits sweetly. If in this year's ravaging, I eke an ounce of beauty, it will outweigh all of your ashy remnant. I can paste it on my foot soles and stick me to the incinerated earth where I will wait for the rich loam, tear-soaked and fertile to live. This is what poets do, Cancer. Wow. Maybe my theme poem for this. That sounds I love the, uh, what's it, I have wings? Mm-hmm. Shoulder blades and ankles. ankles. I love that. That's great. That's the picture that was in my head. Yeah. yeah that it's a, a digging through and a sifting through ashes to find treasures. Mm. Just kind of what this year looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. That's awesome. Because they were. They were everywhere. They were all over the place. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there's, it's real, it's real hard to um, paint cancer as all bad all the time because how about, how about this? I'll say that again. It's real hard to paint a year where you're dealing with cancer as all bad all the time because it's not true because you are still living as a creature created in God's image with it all around you. And this is our father's world and it broken and beautiful, you just see it in this super loud way right in front of you. Mm. You know? It's just an amplification of the fight. There it is. Okay. (laughs) I was packing up, and then Katie said, can I tell them where I met you? And I was like, where did we meet? And she said... She hinted, and I went, oh, uh-huh. yes, you've got to tell this story. <laughs> yeah, so I was hanging out with my new friend, Dara Easterday, and she um, she worked for your booking agency, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. She said, hey, do you want to go over and um, meet the guys from The Normals? And I was like, I don't know who they are. I don't know. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I found out that I that I should know who you are. It's so fun. <laughs> but you guys, were you all living together we in an all, apartment? Yeah, in a two-bedroom, five guys in a two-bedroom. In an apartment, in, this, in an apartment complex. And we went over to go say hi. I think it, she had said maybe you were going to like have pizza and hang out. That's, so we were was going a day over of the to, week, so yeah. <laughs> so we were going over to hang out. And um, when, I, when we showed up, uh, you guys were in your apartment, and there were all of these wires <laughs> and things. And they said, uh, they said hey, you want to come out in the parking lot with us? We're going to shoot <laughs> off some fireworks. And I think Mark Lockett had been working on rigging up fireworks so that you, like, somehow through your mic cables. He had built a separate pedal board. He had his guitar pedal board, and then he had a separate <laughs> pedal board where he had he had rigged it. I, I don't understand how. He, so that it would shoot off fireworks when he stepped on certain buttons. Mm-hmm. The idea being that then we could have pyrotechnics in our concerts. Yes. Our, artsy singer songwriter <laughs> concerts and yeah. what he did is he took he took bo- like bottle rock like model rocket uh-huh fuses uh-huh and he put them in actual fireworks so yeah, he was building all this soldering so, all this stuff so this on I our think apartment had just floor all come together caught the, and you caught guys the carpet just... on fire like eight times Wow. So he took this and he put it in the truck and went to the back of the parking lot of your apartment complex. We went out and he did it and he shot him off. 
And, we're, and, and you guys worked. were like, and it worked. We and you guys were freaking out and you were so excited about it. And then all these police cars with their, with their lights off rolled up slow because <laughs> so many time, people had called and reported shots fired. And they pulled up and you were like, you were surrounded by the police yeah. <laughs> because they thought like, they thought there was like a, a gang war going yeah, on Yeah, I mean, we all had to lay on the ground. Yeah, you all had to lay. We were, somehow, Darren and I didn't get involved. And you guys were all laying on the ground and you went through this whole thing. And then, um, if I recall, the way that this ended, was it the police officer? You just go ahead because this happened to you, right? It happened to Mark. You gotta, oh, it happened you can, to Mark. And so the police officer... They found and, out we were in a band. Found out you were in a band. And then the police officer gave Mark his demo. <laughs> 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 because we live in Nashville. That's <laughs> oh, one of my favorite stories ever. Well, yeah, that's... I, I tell people that all the time. Y'all know how I met them? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> truly one of my favorite memories and I had forgotten about it. I was so thankful that Katie remembered. Oh man. But what a great uh, time it was to be with Katie and, um, and uh, also get a shout out to her husband, Kenny, who took the kids to the pool. Uh, so the house was empty and we could have a quiet conversation. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Pivots.com, andrewosenga.com for my music and everything else. Uh, a big thank you to our sponsors, the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, nifw.org and the Global Counseling Network, globalcounselingnetwork.com. Please go check those folks out. They do great work. Uh, thank you again for listening. I will have another episode out next week that is one of my other favorite interviews that I've done. Uh, I can't wait to get it out there. You guys are going to love it. I also want to say that uh, the reason that I interviewed Katie is because somebody sent me an email and said, you should interview Katie, and I said, yes, I should. Um, thank you guys for sending me emails. I have not had a chance to respond to all of them like I wish. I get a, a lot of them, and I'm so thankful, and it's just, I can't keep up. Um, so I apologize for those of you that I have not responded to, but thank you for taking the time to write. Um, if nothing else, uh, know that I do read them, and I am really encouraged by it, and I hope to get back to you all at some point soon. You guys are the best. Now go do something awesome. <laughs> <laughs>